Well, happy Wednesday night to you folks. I want to invite you this evening to take your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians 15 with me, if you would, please. Of course, some of you will recognize 1 Corinthians 15 as the great resurrection chapter. And I want us tonight to look at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 58. And we're going to talk about Christian service in light of the resurrection. Christian service in light of the resurrection. So if you'll read along with me, uh, there in verse 58 it says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a wonderful verse that is a response uh, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the impact that it is to have on our lives. Uh, before we get started with the Bible study tonight, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Can we do that? Father, we want to lift up this time uh, this evening as we look into your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that these words, uh, that you would make them clear to our hearts and minds. And Lord, that you would strengthen us in our walk with you and in our service. We want to continue to pray for those in our church family who are suffering from uh, various illnesses. Some that uh, might be facing surgeries upcoming fairly soon. Uh, Lord, we pray for all of these individuals and these families that you would give them a strength beyond anything that they possess on their own, that you would heal them, whether it's through doctors and medicines or through your touch, that you would heal them. Lord, we pray that you would use their doctors, give them wisdom from above, that they would treat them in the most effective and efficient way possible. Lord, continue to be with the church, not only our church, but all churches during this time as we're missing fellowship with one another. Uh, Father, just remind us that you're always with us. As Jesus said to his disciples, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So even though we are apart right now as the body of Christ, uh, you're still in our midst and you're with each and every one of us and we're so grateful for that now again be with this study tonight we pray in jesus name amen i want to thank you for giving not only to the church during this time but as many of you know at this time of the year at easter we collect the annie armstrong easter offering for north american missions uh, now i want to read just a moment about Annie Armstrong. Some of you may not be that acquainted with her. So let me just read some details about her life. She was born on July the 11th, 1850, and she passed away December 20th, 1938. Uh, she was a layperson in Southern Baptist life, and she was a denominational leader who was very instrumental in the founding of the Women's Missionary Union, the WMU. Uh, Annie was born in Baltimore, Maryland, 
Now I'm going somewhere with this. We're going to tie it into these verses tonight, so stay with me for a moment. Uh, she was born in Baltimore, Maryland. She also had a brother by the name of James, and she came from a long uh, line of prominent Baptists, including her great-great-grandfather, Henry Sater, who helped establish the very first Baptist church in Maryland. At the age of 20, she accepted Christ as her Savior under the preaching of Dr. Richard Fuller. Uh, she was there at Seventh Baptist Church, now the Seventh Metro Church. It was there that she uh, professes that she had a born-again experience, a conversion experience, and that she was equipped to lead a missionary life. Later, she was among a hundred church members there at the Seventh Baptist Church who established the Utah Place Church, which is now the Woodbrook Baptist Church. And the church was pastored by Richard Fuller, who was the third president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was heavily involved in missionary activities. She worked with various Baltimore mission organizations and they ministered to orphan, uh, orphans, African Americans, Native Americans, uh, Chinese American immigrants, and indigent women and families. In 1888, uh, Annie led in the creation of the WMU, helping draft the Constitution and serving as its first executive director. Now, in her role as head of the organization, she facilitated communication between the WMU and denominational leaders and uh, also worked with local congregations and missionaries on the field. Uh, she was a very extensive letter writer. In one year alone, she wrote 18,000 personal letters. Could you imagine handwriting 18,000 letters? Now during her tenure as head of the WMU, she refused a salary and she traveled extensively at her own expense. Uh, she was a tireless advocate for missionaries and she would rally churches to support mission work. She personally visited missionaries all over the North American continent, and she would carry their stories back to the churches and associations and state conventions, making sure that the churches were aware of their needs. And uh, through her efforts uh, and the uh, other women of the WMU, the annual, uh, uh, the annual Easter offering for home missions, as it was called then, was established in 1895. And then in 1934, this offering was named after her. Now, I want to ask you a question. Uh, did Annie Armstrong waste her life? Absolutely not. Uh, no one would think that. She lived her life to the fullest for the sake of the gospel. Her life has been an in inspiration to hundreds and thousands of others who have gone out across North America serving in church planning and missionary activities. And 
every Easter, even today, right here in our church, we collect the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. And this offering goes to support missionaries and their families right here in North America, particularly in, of course, uh, the United States and Canada. Well, you know, Jesus in John 13 uh, told a story about service, the importance of serving the way Annie Armstrong did. Uh, he taught his disciples about the importance of each of us serving and being very humble in our service and dedicated to it. When we think about Christian labor, uh, we know Christian labor and service is a normal part of the Christian life. Well, folks, we need to understand that there are enemies to this kind of life. In Ephesians 6, Paul mentions that we have the devil as an enemy. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And we need to suit up with the whole armor of God. And we need to stand firm against the evil one. And we need to be ready to serve the Lord in a dark and a fallen world where Satan is very active. There's also the danger of false confessions. Jesus also talked about this in Matthew 7. Uh, believers who, uh, or so-called believers who say they know the Lord, but there's no fruit in their lives. There's no service. There's no fruitfulness. There's nothing to back up their uh, profession of faith. And you know, unfortunately, we've got a lot of that in churches today. Some people refer to it as easy believism. Uh, somebody walks an aisle, they pray a prayer, they might sign a, co a commitment card, walk out of the church, and they go back to their old life. They've not really been born again. There's no fruit. Uh, even where true conversion does exist, we all know how easy it is for apathy and complacency to creep back into our lives. You know, in Revelation 2, Jesus spoke of the church at Ephesus. They had lost their first love. They had become apathetic, and Jesus called them to renew the work that they did at first, renew their love for him. But apathy is easy to creep back in. Folks, I, I want to point out tonight that Christianity gives us more than, than a hope, more than personal comfort. Now, obviously, it gives us those things, and I'm thankful for that. It gives us an everlasting hope. It gives us a ministry. It gives us a calling. It gives us a purpose. And in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus talked to us about the Great Commission. Everywhere in the New Testament, we see that we are to live for God's purposes. Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. So service is very critical to the Christian life. We are to die to ourselves. Now, why do I say all of this? I say all of this to introduce... 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
because that's essentially what Paul is talking about here in this verse. In one little verse, we are told how we are supposed to conduct our lives. How we are to live our lives and what we are supposed to be doing. We see that the Christian life is to be a life of labor and service carried out in the name of the Lord. Now, as I've been encouraging you to do on these videotapes, uh, I want to encourage you today, if you would uh, take some notes, and as you do so, I want you to write down, first of all, the gospel of the risen Lord is the foundation of all Christian labor. The gospel of the risen Lord is the foundation of all Christian uh, labor. The gospel, of course, is the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul wants to point out that for us and for Christ, obviously, uh, there's the resurrection of the dead. There's the bodily resurrection. And so he says, therefore, my beloved brethren. In other words, what he's saying is in light of this. You know, it's been said whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to ask the question, what is it therefore? What's the therefore? Therefore. Well, in this case, it calls you back to what Paul's just been discussing in all of chapter 15. Paul's been discussing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection for those who are in Christ. Everything that Paul says here in verse 58 is because of the validity of the resurrection. Take your Bibles and turn with me back to the beginning of chapter 15. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We know, of course, what was going on. Uh, the, the context to Paul writing this chapter, some were scoffing when it came to the message of the resurrection. And Paul lets them know as he continues to write in chapter 15 that if there's no resurrection of the dead then that would mean that not even Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. And he points out that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then you and I would still be in our sins. 
In fact, if he's not risen from the dead, as Paul points out, there, there are several logical things that flow out of this. He says that your faith would, would be in vain, and as I just mentioned, you would still be in your sins. There would be no such thing as the forgiveness of sins or eternal life. And when you die, you die if there's no resurrection. And Paul says also that our preaching would be useless. In fact, it would make our preaching false. We would be false witnesses because we would be saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if he didn't rise from the dead, we would be false witnesses. Folks, I hope you can see the ramifications in this. We would be without hope, without the resurrection. What would be the point in church? What would be the point in evangelism or missions? There would not be a point in any of that. Everything we do related to the Christian life would be a waste of time and resources. And so everything about ministry hinges on the validity and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that the resurrection validated the word of Christ. Christ said he would rise again. He told his disciples he would travel to Jerusalem. He would be mocked and scourged and crucified. And then he would rise again on the third day. So his resurrection validated his word. Had he stayed in the grave and nothing had happened, then he would have been shown to have been a liar and a fraud. The resurrection also validated the work of Christ. His resurrection showed that the Father accepted the sin sacrifice that he made. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that speaking of Christ, that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have the hope even now of being with Christ if we die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Even before the bodily resurrection. At the moment of death, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Like Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But in addition to that, we have the promise of a future bodily resurrection that is based on Christ's bodily resurrection three days after he was crucified. We know there's a bodily resurrection to condemnation for those outside of Christ, but there is a bodily resurrection unto life for those who are in Christ. And that should make a great deal of impact upon how we live our lives even now. And so again, the gospel is the foundation of everything we do as Christians and the gospel, of course, is the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I emphasize this? Well, you would think it would be so basic and foundational, but sadly, we see a lot in the world today being passed off as Christian labor or ministry, 
and it's really not. Christian missions implies that it has to do with the gospel of a Savior who lives, who was raised from the dead. This gospel is foundational to our labor, our service, our ministry. The second point I want you to understand, ministry is the natural outworking of biblical faith in the risen Lord. Again, Paul is making the argument here that ministry flows out of everything that he's just said in chapter 15. Ministry is the natural outflow or the outworking of the gospel. Let's spend a few minutes thinking of some other passages that emphasize the very same thing. I want you to listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 says. Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. We need to understand that there's a faith to keep and a course to finish. We also need to understand there's a race to run. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Furthermore, we need to understand that the Christian is not called to an easy chair, but to a plow. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 61, says that another said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go and say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And then, of course, James in James chapter 2 said that faith without works is dead. All of those passages have a common theme. And that common theme is that biblical faith is to change what we do with our lives. This radical change is possible because the living Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead comes to live in your life and my life through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. All of that encourages us towards something. And that is what Paul is discussing here. We are to be absorbed with laboring for the Lord. Again, what's Paul say here? Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Now the Greek word for work here has in it the meaning of laboring to the point of fatigue. Folks, where did we get the idea that in salvation only something one way happens? God just gives me something. And then I just write out my time here on earth until I go to heaven one day. And so in the meantime, 
I receive all of these blessings from God. I do nothing with them. And I just go about my daily business. In some circles of Christianity today, that's what you hear. At bare minimum, it is an incomplete gospel message. At worst, it is a false gospel message. It's the image that God is this great cosmic granddaddy. He gives everything to you that you want. And then he gives you nice little pep talks and pats on the back along the way. And meantime, you and I just go back to our own business and we do whatever we want to do in life. It's a very narcissistic way of looking at life. God exists for me. Life is about me. And God is there just to make me happy and meet all of my needs. Folks, the problem is you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Now, don't misunderstand. Yes, God gives us a great deal. God gives us the most. He reconciles us to himself through the cross, through what his son did there for us. He gives us peace and love and joy and reconciliation. But along with that, He changes your life. He transforms your life. You're a new creation in Christ. And that's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's admonishing us here to do the same, to live the same way. And he's being quite passionate about it. Look at what all he says about this. How are we to labor for the Lord? He says here that we are to be steadfast and immovable. In other words, we are to be firm and settled in our convictions. Steadfast refers to being settled. And it comes from a word that means to take a seat. In other words, be firmly settled in your convictions. Know what you believe and why. Some years ago, some conservative writers and pastors started writing and speaking about a trend that we are witnessing in the American evangelical church. Today, there's sort of a anti-intellectualism going on at church where people don't want to think they just want to feel but as the Bible points out our feelings have to be based on truth we have to be settled steadfast and unmoved in what we believe in believing the truth of the gospel Folks, I think that's so important because if someone is not really settled in their convictions yet, that's going to affect the way they serve. I want you to think about it. Why would you go to a mission field? Why would you serve in the local church? Why would you share your faith if you weren't even sure what you believed, if you weren't settled in your convictions? 
You know, in just about all previous generations, Christianity was the default religion in America. From the founding of our country, men and women fought for religious freedoms and liberty, and the Bible was the centerpiece of society in government, in schools, in the marketplace. And, and even if there was a danger in being the default religion, uh, because complacency can easily set in in a situation like that, nonetheless, Christianity was the accepted message. But now in many sectors of society, Christianity has to fight for its right to even be in the public square. My point is there's this massive cultural shift that is taking place. And so as never before, you and I need to be steadfast, unmoved. We need to be settled in our convictions. We need to know what we believe and why. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 15, we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have within us. I'm so grateful for all the tools that we have today that can help us to better understand the message of the Bible and to be settled. And I hope you take advantage of, of this rich host of tools that we have today. Well, notice what Paul says after he says, be steadfast and movable. He says, always abound in the work of the Lord or always be excelling in the work of the Lord. The idea there is doing more than the basic requirements. Have you ever worked with somebody who all they cared about was just barely getting by? They used to drive me crazy in school sometimes. Uh, in classes on school projects where the teacher would divide you up into groups of maybe four or five people. And it seemed like there would always be several people on the team that, it, you know, if 69 was a failing grade, they were perfectly happy to make a 70. They just wanted to get by. Well, I wanted to make an A, and there would be other people on the team wanting to make an A. And so usually what we would end up having to do was we would do all the work while these others would just sort of coast. You know, that's how some Christians view laboring or working for the Lord. What's the bare minimum that I can do? And folks, here again, I don't want you to misunderstand. The gospel is not a works salvation. I want to emphasize that. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 goes on to tell us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote so much about grace, said of himself, he said, I labored more than all of the other apostles. The idea is of overflow. Because of God's grace, because of conversion that we have through God's grace, the fruit of our lives is that we are to overflow in work for the Lord. 
And the idea of overflow was of a river that would get outside of its banks, like in a flood stage, it would overflow its banks. That's how we're to be in our service for the Lord. It's to be without limits. It's to be without boundaries. It's to be overflowing. We're to abound in our work for the Lord. We're to abound in prayer, in ministry, in the work of the Great Commission. It's no accident either that the Christian life is compared to the life of a farmer. Farmers work hard. They prepare the soil. They pray for good weather. They sow the seed. They fertilize. Then they harvest. What's the motivation for a farmer? He gets to see the harvest. And so Christians are to overflow in their labor for the Lord now, expecting one day to see a harvest. Third thing I want you to write down, Christian ministry and labor is not without its benefits. Paul goes on to say here, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's a future reward. The great promise here is that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. I want you to think for a moment about all the things in your life or in my life that if we really took an honest assessment of them, they would be in vain. I know I've done a lot of things that have no eternal value to them whatsoever. So if I looked at them honestly, much of what I've done in life from time to time has been in vain. Think of all the money we spend, all the energy that we spend on things that don't really matter at the end of the day. But God promises us here that our labor for Him is not in vain. God remembers our labor. You remember when Mary broke that bottle of perfume or ointment on the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair? The disciples led by Judas complained. And we're told that Judas complained because he kept the purse. And he was greedy and he was a thief. Uh, but Jesus scolded them for rebuking Mary. You remember what Jesus said? Wherever this gospel is preached in the future, what she has done will be spoken of. It will be remembered. God remembers our labor. You remember also the parable about the sheep and the goats where Jesus said to the sheep, you know, enter into my glory because you fed me, you looked after me. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, whenever you've done it, even for one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. They didn't realize what they'd done. But God remembered God remembers our labor. Not only does He remember, but He rewards. He rewards our labor. It's not in vain. Go back to 2 Timothy 4 for a minute in verses 7 and 8 where Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You hear what he said there at the end? He will award me on that day. 
You know, the Bible speaks of crowns. There's the incorruptible crown. There's the crown of light. There's the crown of righteousness. There's the crown of glory. There's the crown of rejoicing. The different crowns that the Lord will give to us one day. What's the point that I'm making? There's a future reward. God does not forget and he will reward our labor. You might be overlooked now. You might be underappreciated. But guess what? To the one that it really matters to, he knows. And he will reward you one day. He's faithful. Several years ago in a message, I, I told you a, a missionary story, one of my favorite missionary stories I think I've ever read by uh, a gentleman named Henry Morrison. Henry Morrison and his wife had been missionaries to Africa for more than 30 years. Their life's work was now complete. They had retired from being missionaries. They were coming back home. President Teddy Roosevelt happened to be on board the same ship that they were on. Roosevelt loved to hunt big game. And he had been on a safari hunt in Africa. Well, as their ship was pulling into the harbor uh, there at New York City, there was a great crowd gathered to, to meet the president, to welcome the president of the United States back home. There was all kinds of fanfare and a parade and just all kinds of festivities. Well, as Henry and his wife looked over the edge of the ship to the, all the masses gathered there and the celebration going on, Henry said, look at that. You and I have been in Africa for all of our adult lives sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, winning lost souls to Christ, discipling them, building churches, helping to alleviate sickness and suffering and feeding the poor. We come home and there's not a single person here to greet us. The president goes to Africa for a couple of weeks, shoots some large game, and multitudes have turned out to welcome him home. Henry's wife turned to him and she said, Yes, Henry, that's true. But there's something I want you to remember. We're not home yet. I love that story. We're not home yet. One day we'll be home. We'll be with the Lord. And He will reward our labor that we've done for Him. Folks, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you tonight to examine your work for the Lord. Are you steadfast and immovable? Do you know what you believe and why? Do you have convictions, biblical convictions, about the good news of Jesus Christ? Hold on to those convictions. Be settled. Know what you believe and why. How about your work for the Lord? Do you measure it out in just little tiny doses? Just doing the bare minimum. 
or do you abound in the work of the Lord? Would your labor, would your life of work for the Lord be like a river that flows outside of its banks? That you're just overflowing? Or again, is it just measured out? I hope and pray my life will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. So I trust you can see what Paul is getting at here. In light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I have every reason to be living for him and serving him while we have the opportunity. What opportunities do you have in front of you today? And are you faithfully taking advantage of those opportunities? God bless you. Take care. Be safe. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the message of the resurrection and the purpose that that gives to our lives today. May we richly abound in our service for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.